0: A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the guerrilla. the eleven Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic game. So <laughs> tell at the Skizard. Out of the twenty-four who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in coverage. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut noosa. Tamut Pafi. Whoever heard such beautiful words? Hadunabecho, Tamut It is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. everyone, to Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yehuda Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites. And this episode in our ongoing series of Great American Jewish Cities is up to Miami. And I will not be singing any Miami boys' choir songs to you because I want you to enjoy the episode. But uh, since that's the first thing that pops into many people's minds um, when you hear the word Miami, so perhaps we'll get into the history of... Of that as well, um, without without any singing. Um, this uh, this episode has been generously sponsored and dedicated in honor of Eli Neuberger and Lazer Nishmas Yitzchak Yitzchak Yisrael Ben Yosef. So we talk about Miami, um, Miami South Florida, the area, Miami Beach. Um, so in yeah, one of the uh, famous residents of, of uh, the Jewish residents of that area in the 1970s was the Jewish mobster, perhaps the most famous Jewish mobster, Meyer Lansky. And when he retired down to Florida in his later years, he he tried to encourage some other friends of his to come down, and he said that Florida is the real promised land. He said for American Jews when you're old you want quiet and peace and come to the real pl- promised land down to florida that's that's the reputation it eventually gets there's uh, another thing that comes to mind is the Jerry Seinfeld uh, I believe it was him he said that you know his parents hate florida and they also hate golf but they're jewish they're from new york and they're over 65 so it's the law they got to go down to florida so again that's uh that gives a little bit of a, a feeling of what you know th- uh, the Miami experience is all about. Um, the other Miami experience, not the Miami Boys Choir, that we'll get to soon. The the um, there's another another quip that I heard that puts things into context. One of the landmark uh, locations for the Haimish community in Miami is Tower 41, and uh, a friend of mine was in. Tower 41 ones, and he was speaking to an elderly Hungarian Jew. I think it was a survivor, and my friend, who was a yeshiva guy, he expressed surprise that the Tower 41 pool uh, and uh, had mixed swimming. So my friend was, was didn't participate in the mixed swimming. So he was expressing his disappointment to this elderly uh, Hungarian Jew: Why they have mixed uh, swimming? Why can't they have hours that are separate for men and women? So he turns to him and he says, Der Zeit nicht und Der kick kik nicht." The ones who see don't look, and the ones who look can't see. And that also, uh, I think, uh, brings out another, from the, all these different angles, we get a little bit of a feeling of the Miami um, Jewish community, the Jewish community of South Florida. In fact, Palm Beach County, where Miami is, the twenty percent of the population is Jewish. That's one out of five people. Just for uh, statistics, this is blew my mind. It might blow yours. It's the highest in the world. There is not a single area in the world that has a higher Jewish population outside of Israel. Obviously, Israel is uh, is the highest uh, highest concentration. Uh, well, 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 more than twenty percent, but um, outside of Israel. The highest concentration of Jewish population in the world is Palm Beach County with 20%. Miami Beach back in its, uh, in its heyday was 80% Jewish in the 1970s before the Miami area started a decrease in Jewish population from its peak. It had 230,000 uh, Jews in Miami Beach. It was 80% Jewish at one time. Many, many successive mayors were Jewish um we we'll, perhaps we'll get to a couple of those later on also but in the ni- following that in the 1980s it experienced a bit of of uh migration to wealthier areas and population aging to other areas of south florida not so much um not so much to not not, not really so far away the area didn't go into decline at all uh, just um a bit of a, a population shift from one place to another if we talk about Jews in Florida, not exclusively Miami, again, I'm, I'm going to be focusing primarily in Miami, but I want to touch on a few aspects of Jewish Florida overall, because I doubt we'll get to some of these other places. But Jews in Florida have a long, rich history, a fascinating family, the Levy family in in central Florida, northern Florida in the 19th century. Uh, Moses Levy, the patriarch of the family, was a a Moroccan Jew from a, an elite uh, rich, wealthy Moroccan Jewish family who, they moved to Gibraltar and then eventually to England, and uh, and then he comes to Florida. Um, he was a a one of the greatest Jewish activists of the 19th century um, for Jewish causes and other causes as well. He in the uh, post Napoleonic uh, uh, era in Europe there was a, all kinds of reactionary policies against the Jews and in central Europe and other areas, it's also a, a great topic. And he decides that he's gonna leave Europe and take up the cause and and he's gonna you know, start a an in agricult- Jewish asylum, an agricultural settlement in in Central Florida. And um the first of its kind, the first attempt like that in the United States, um, even though Florida was not not a state yet, it was a territory at the time, it was the mid eighteen hundreds. And he and he um and he um, devotes himself to all kinds of Jewish and general causes. He actually had a period of his life where he was something of an abolitionist, but he also later on was a slave owner when he was in Florida, so he went through the different stages in his attitude towards slavery. His son achieved m- much renown. His, name, his, son, his son's name was David Uly Levy, Levy, and David Uly Levy was a Florida railroad magnate, and he was the first Florida territorial delegate to Congress, and even more, as far as Jewish history is concerned, he was the first ever Jewish senator, though he converted to Christianity, but he had strong Moroccan Jewish roots, and and um, he definitely experienced anti-Semitism throughout his career, so that's Jewish enough, even if his, even though he converted. And he was the first Jewish senator to the United States Senate. He was a big supporter of slavery and secession. He supported Florida's secession from the Union during the Civil War, and he gave up his Senate seat, and at the end of the Civil War, he was arrested uh, for having aided the president of the Confederacy, Jefferson Davis's escape. And following the uh, his release from prison, he went back to his railroad business, which he did quite well from. So that's a a interesting uh, Florida story from the nineteenth century um, when Fla- Miami. The Miami area has a bit of a late start as far as its Jewish community is uh, concerned. It only start, picks up in the early 1900s. Um, in, my, in the 1920s, there was a real estate boom, kind of more real estate, real estate speculation. It was a boom and a bust. The hurricanes, which still experience still today, um, but that 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 destroyed the uh, real estate market then. But there was uh, quite a bit of Jewish immigration from the north, from New York and that area. In the 1920s and 30s, when it seemed that Miami would be picking up, and though most of them left after the the bust and it didn't grow, but uh, when, uh, but uh, that was the be that was the nucleus of the of the Jewish community then, because it, you know the influx of Jewish immigrants had become so quick, and and the infrastructure wasn't built. So there was a lot of a lot of not not it wasn't a very well structured uh, community in the 1920s and 30s i believe i remember seeing i couldn't I didn't have a chance to look it up again but i believe i remember seeing that the Boston Rebbe said over a story which he must have heard from someone who was there about this uh, unscrupulous sheikhit who was in florida during those days and who decided that with all the jews moving in he he can he can decide that he's a sheikhit and uh, without really having any experience in Shechita. So what he would do, he had a bit of Jewish uh, Ashkenazic guilt, so he w- would have a tzedakah box outside his shlachtas, where, you know, do the mitzvah of tzedakah when you come here, so even if the Shechita is no good, but there's some sort of, you know, religious experience going on, and that should make up for the bad shchita. Um In 1930, there was a young rabbi named Lazarus Axelrod, and in in Florida, and he started a short-lived newspaper called the Jacobian. And this Axelrod fellow was interesting. Uh, uh, he was an alumnus of the Chevron Slabatki Yeshiva in Chevron, who departed Chevron only two weeks prior to the horrible events of of uh, Tavfresh Petes of Tarpat of the nineteen twenty nine massacre, which is actually right around now. Today's Tuba of in the ninety uh, first anniversary of the Chevron massacres in three days. It's a high of 18th day of Av. And when he uh, arrives uh, back in the United States, he receives the news of the gruesome massacre of his close friends, his friends who had been killed, when he saw the newspaper headline as he walked off the ship. And he went on to write several articles for the paper which shared the story of his time at the yeshiva and these accounts, which are not firsthand, he wasn't an eyewitness, but about his friends and, a, and from the people who were there that he heard it from, they're among the most fascinating and gripping accounts and tragic accounts that we have from that time period. Um, and we talk about Miami, so it took me a while to figure it out. Um, and, uh, uh, I'm not from the area, but it's the Miami area, that general vicinity. Uh, for all intents and purposes, we're talking about Miami, Miami Beach, North Miami Beach, Hollywood, Fort Lauderdale, even as far up north the uh, coast as Delray Beach or even Boca Raton, that whole general vicinity is is um for us outsiders is is all part of the greater Miami area and I don't mean to uh insult anyone by 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 calling their place Miami and it's really not Miami and it's not the intention. Another thing that happens in south near off the coast of South Florida during those early years was another tragic story that became almost a symbol in retrospect it actually became a symbol of the indifference of the of the uh, world the outside world the western world to what was ultimately going to happen to the jewish people during the holocaust there was a ship called the saint louis that was uh, that had was carrying german jewish refugees in the spring of 1939 I remind you the spring of 1939 is already after the Anschluss, after the unification between Germany, Nazi Germany and Austria, to create the Third Reich. It's already after the tragic events of Kristallnacht, the, um, the terrible pogrom across Germany and Austria and the Sudetenland of, of Czechoslovakia, with which Hitler already controlled. It's far after the events of the Evian Conference where the nations of the world decide not to take in Jewish refugees escaping Germany. And this um, this ship, the Saint Louis, sails off the first sails to Cuba, um, with the understanding that, the, that they would be able to disembark at Cuba. The, there was a misunderstanding, and Cuba did not allow them to disembark. So they instead sail up the coast to Florida, hoping to let the Jews off to the United States. Coast Guard ships, United States Coast Guard ships, shadow the St. Louis to prevent that from happening, to prevent it from docking at any U.S. port, to make sure it stays away. It becomes an international outcry. It becomes a humanitarian crisis. The Jewish community of the United States is galvanized. They start to unite. Really, it's something that brings them together for the first time, this, this, this uh, ch- boatload of Jewish refugees and to no avail, the United States government does not allow them in. The St. Louis is forced to sail back to Europe. And they're actually going to take these German Jewish refugees and bring them back to Nazi Germany. Believe it or not, that was going to happen. At the last second, the 11th hour, um, four countries decide to split them up a quarter each England, France, uh, Holland, and I think Belgium, maybe there's a mix, mixing up a fourth country, and which ultimately, most of them did get killed when Hitler uh, invaded those countries, not England, but the other ones. Um, so unfortunately that was a very tragic ending to that story. So that has the Florida connection. But in those 1920s and 30s, there are some other prestigious visitors. Um, Reb Shimon Shkup, a, a historic moment for the history of the yeshiva world. Reb Shimon Shkup, um, when he was a when he was in the United States, was a Rosh Hashiva in, um, in Rosh Hashiva's in Yeshiva College. And, and Dr. Revel had convinced him to stay there. And he was going to become the Rosh Hashiva there in 1929. He was there for over a year. And when he when Rosh Hashiva ended up making the decision, which discussed in the Rosh Hashiva episode a long time ago, uh, to go back to Europe, to his yeshiva, to the yeshiva in Grodna, so he sent a letter to Revel from Miami. Rabbi was in Miami when he made that decision and when he sent off the letter to, um, to Revel that he's going back to Europe. So there's a historic moment in Miami. Another visitor to Florida in those days was Rabbi Chaim Leib Orbach, today famous as the father of Rabbi Shleim but in his own time, he was a Rosh Yeshiva of a Yeshiva of Mikubalim in Yerushalayim, was a fascinating personality, a worldwide traveler and a very, very um, colorful personality. So he was in Florida as part of his cross-country fundraising trip for the yeshiva Sha'ar HaShemayim, this yeshiva from a in 1932. And he presented himself as a dean of Kabbalah in Palestine. And he said he has a yeshiva with more than 500 students. I don't know, and I don't think that there was 500 students, but that's, that's um, you know, the... Uh, Maybe it influenced that uh, that amount of people, and he spent uh, Shabbasim in Miami and in Tampa, and he also visited Tallahassee in orlando so there's uh, you know perhaps there was some connection being that he was such a dynamic and colorful personality, so perhaps there was some sort of connection between him and Walt Disney at the time. who knows, and if there wasn 't we can definitely make one up. Another interesting uh, story at the time a bizarre story to a certain extent was um when um, president elect Roosevelt a few days before his inauguration in nineteen thirty-three, so there was an attempted assassination by a fellow by the name of Gi- Giuseppe Zangara. Um and and uh and 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 he missed Roosevelt and he hit the Chicago mayor Anton Shermack. Um and Anton Shermack this mayor of Chicago so his daughter Sends her, and this happened in Florida. Excuse me, it happened when uh, when they were in Florida. That's the connection to Florida here. And this daughter of uh, of the mayor of Chicago, she sends a letter to the Labavitch the Friediker Rebbe, the Rayats, in Europe. He's back in 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 Poland and in, in Warsaw at the time. And he asked the Rebbe to daven for this non-Jewish mayor. So the mayor is not Jewish. The story takes place in Florida, Florida. The Lubavitch Rebbe is in Poland. Of all people, like, why did it happen that way? And um so I don't know why she turned to him and what the greater context was, but that's what happened. Either way, uh, I don't know if the Rebbe did daven or didn't daven, but it didn't work because Czermak, uh died a few days later and Zangara was given the electric chair. There's a famous saying that's attributed to Zangara, that he said to Roosevelt, "It's good. It was me, and not you." But the truth is that he never said it. Either way, getting to the real uh, Miami history. So, you have different parts of the Miami Jewish community. You have the residents all year round. You have the retirees who live there all year round, and then you have the snowbirds who come for part of the part of the year, and then you have the vacationers who who uh, who are there just they have, uh, they they come. At, As as they need their vacation, and Florida is seen as a place to vacation. So that's the Jewish Florida culture, and that's the different components of the Jewish community there. So as I said, the Jewish settlement there starts relatively late. It only really gets strong in the 1950s and 60s, in the post-war. It corresponds to the post-war tourist development potential of South Florida, when air conditioning becomes more common. Before air conditioning, it's just too stifling—the heat and humidity in in Florida—and also because of mosquito control. So there's technological advances that make it possible to make, to have that South Florida's uh, Jewish community should grow. There's also big marketing campaigns in in New York, as billboards in Times Square saying that summer goes to Florida for the winter. Uh, the kosher hotels before the condo uh, communities, so uh, there was kosher hotels. Down in Florida, the Jews start to go down as well in large numbers. Collins Avenue becomes a Jewish area. Tower Forty One, European Jews, religious Jews, secular Jews, New York Jews, and it, it becomes the you know a, a very New Yorkish uh, community. But down in Florida, um, you know it's it's where New York sends their old people and where the Five Towns spends midwinter vacations. So that very much gets that feeling. And like I said, the Jewish mafia. Um, several retirees, uh, also Jewish mob, the Jewish mob, like Meyer Lensky, and others, retired there. Um, one of the early, uh, early Jews who arrived in Florida in the 1950s was a fellow by the name of Larry King, who who grows up in Brooklyn, um, in 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 Brownsville, and his name was there was Larry Zeiger. He grew up in an Orthodox Jewish home, uh, to immigrant parents. His parents were from Vilna and Kolomaya in Europe. And he and he in 1957 moves to Miami to try to break into radio, and the rest is history. He becomes a very famous interviewer and in radio and media personality. Um, so it has it has that in 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 uh, Rabbi Avram Kalmanovich, the legendary, uh, Mir. Uh, of Brooklyn, and le- fr- previously of the Mir, of, uh, supporting the Mir in Shanghai, and the Salah and everything else that he did, we spoke about him. We had a double episode about him. So he he passes away in Miami. There's a place where he was spending time, trying to recuperate, and he he uh, he was nifter in in Miami. There's another Miami connection, much more recent times, the later Satmar Rebbe, the Berach a Rebbe, title bound. So he was taking a tower air, whoever remembers tower air, it's also a piece of history, a tower air flight to Florida to go for his vacation, like his uncle, the Satmarov did, which we'll get to also, in 1995. And it almost crashed in the airport in New York, and the, he was saved by miracle, uh, and uh, nothing happened to him. But that was also on his way to, to Miami. One of the early and prominent uh, builders of the Jewish community in Miami was Chabar, like in many other places, and the uh, amazing couple, who was the Chabad, original Chabad Shlicham, Shlicham, to to Miami, was Rabbi Avram and Rivka Korf, who were legends in their own time. Their children are still there, and Rabbi Avram Korf, who was a, one of those brave yeshiva students who stayed in the Soviet Union, keeping Judaism alive, and eventually gets out and comes to the United States and um, and uh, marries Rivka Korf, and they and they becomes Rivka Korf, and they become the first uh, Chabad Shliro to build up um, Torah and Hasidus. They start a school, very active. They come to what was then a desert and built it into a very very prestigious Jewish community. So much so that the first Chabad Taimchet Mimim yeshiva, one of the first in America, perhaps the first outside of the New York area, was built in Florida. And also a a a shliach sent by the rebbe, the rashi yeshiva who's still around may live and be well. Rabbi Huda Leib Shapiro, Rabbi Leib Shapiro, um, the first yeshiva started by the rebbe as a shlichas in America it becomes a very prestigious yeshiva. Is still around, still very prestigious, and it starts in 1974. So you have the shlichas to the community, to the shul, to the to to build it up in elementary school, and then you have this yeshiva down there uh, started by uh, by, by Rabbi Leib Shapiro as well. Um, Miami was a center of conservative Judaism. There would be 1,500 people showing up Friday night to the conservative, uh, conservative synagogue, and there would be only small pockets of orthodoxy in the 1950s and 60s. And there's also a large Reform Judaism presence. Very large Jewish community, but less of orthodoxy at the time. What it took was a visionary to build up the orthodox Jewish community, and that visionary was Rabbi Alexander Gross, Rab Sender Gross, who was an incredible personality, a great builder of Torah and of Yiddishkeit, and and uh, he was in the shadow of Rabbi Shraga Feivel Mendelovitch, who would, who was his uh, his I think it was his, even related to him, but he was a a um, he was a student of his and uh, a great builder. People loved him; a very beloved figure. People loved giving money him money for his causes to fund his cause. He laid all the foundations. For Tyra and Yiddishkeit in Miami, he was very informal, down to earth, no airs about him. Um, rabbi Wein, Rabbi Wine, who also I'll get to, he described how when he became a rabbi in the Beth Israel Shul in Miami, so he, Rabbi Wine himself told me on several occasions, and he's published it and spoken about it publicly. So, the, the that he he uh, he oh, Rabbi Wine described it that he himself overstepped his boundaries when he was a young rabbi there, and he tried building up a yeshiva there. As a, as a tells yeshiva branch, and uh, and he realized it was inappropriate for him to do so, and he was overstepping his boundaries, and it could have gotten, and it would be a tells takeover of the Masifta, which of course Rabbi Gross was in charge of, the Masifta of Greater Miami. And and it had the potential to become a very serious dispute. And Rabbi went back down, and it didn't open, it didn't happen, and he went over to Rabbi Gross and said, you were 100% right, I was wrong. And what happened after that? It was as if it never happened. And he said it could have been a big dispute. And he said the greatness of Rabbi Gross was that he didn't take this and 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 you know uh, use it and say you know look at what you did and you know keep with the resentment and create a distance. It disappeared. It's as if it would never happen. They became very close friends, and that says a lot about Rabbi Gross. Uh, also, I also think it says. A lot about Rabbi Wein. That's uh, just my uh, my personal take on it. But that's when great people are are looking to do great things together, and uh, the results uh, are like that, and they can be close friends. Miami Beach today is what it is is uh, is is what it is because of his Rabbi Gross is uh, overcoming the challenges and his uh, accomplishing in the 1960s and 70s. He would go around on Erev Pesach to the rebbe's. Who, who came down to Miami for Yantif and bring them matzes. He, he did, he, he was there, you know, a lot without fanfare, uh, with his vision. Um, he, uh, had the Hebrew Academy day school. Um, and, and, uh, Rabbi Zev Leff, who also came back and later was a rabbi in Miami, grew up in North Miami Beach. So he described how Rabbi Gross was his primary Rebbe and he felt close to him immediately. And he told Rabbi Lef's parents, you send him to the day school, you send him to Miami, to the Hebrew Academy, and don't worry about tuition, it'll, it'll be taken care of. He spoke to the teachers, he made him feel comfortable, and he wanted to develop Rabbi Left's potential. Again, this is as a little child, so he asked him to speak publicly. Rabbi Left today is known and renowned as a famous uh, public speaker, and that started off because Rabbi Sender Gross, who was busy with so many things in Miami, was also looking at each every individual child and trying to develop his individual potential. Um, and then Rabbi Lef continued on to the Masifta. And one time, Rabbi Alexander Gross came, approached him and asked him to come Friday night to a get-together because they were hosting the Ponevijarov. Rabbi Yosef Shlemek used to vacation. He you know, would be fundraising. He would spend a lot of time in Miami in those years. Every year, he would come spend a significant amount of time of the year in uh, in Miami, and he wanted the young Rabbi Zev Left, who was still a child, to come and say a dvar Torah in front of the panavisharav, and uh, and he he was nervous, he didn't want to. Rabbi Gross said, "You could do it. Don't worry." He pushed him to do it, and he said that was almost like a turning point in his life, where he got up in front of the panavisharav, who gave him a kiss and a bracha, and uh, and uh, and. Uh, and instilled him with the confidence that he needed. Um, alongside Rabbi Gross was, of course, Rabbi Horowitz, who was known as, for some reason as Rabbi Whitey Horowitz. Um, and he was involved in the Day School Hebrew Academy and later the Pacific of Greater Miami together with Rabbi Gross, um, which brings me to what I mentioned Rabbi Wine in, in Florida. Um, and he comes down to Miami after he was a lawyer in Chicago. And I heard that. Over the years, I heard it from him personally, and then he published a lot of it in his autobiography, which happens to be a great book to get. Anyway, it's it's slim, it's concise, it's interesting, it has good stories, and it's and it's light reading. It's 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 very very entertaining, also. So in there, he describes a lot of his experiences in Miami and coming down to the in the nineteen sixties to become the rabbi of of the small shul there and really building up the community. He describes how the uh, the uh, semi-exotic nature of the city when he came down from Chicago there to the first time and that it was his first time eating mango even. That must have been quite an experience. So he becomes the, the rabbi there and, um, and starts to build up the shul. Um, he says that at that time of the Orthodox shul, there was still people driving to the shul on Shabbos. Um, but that, 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 that over time changed and, and, uh, and he, and he, the shul buys a new, new location. They, they build up, they build a new building, a larger building, new membership. And they, he gets, everyone gets involved with the school, teaching classes, teaching classes involved with the shul. He said the pulpit rabbis at the time were doing kirov before kiruv was invented because you're building up a community and it was really a very communal type of atmosphere. Um, you know, a, a reaching out to the different demographics, different classes for women, for retirees, for the children, for Shabbos afternoon. And, uh, you know, his wife, as the Rabbitson would, would organize, um, also for the children, for the girls. And these things were pioneering at the time, working together with the other rabbis in the neighborhood. They had a council of, of rabbis, the, um, for kashras and for other, for other, uh, community issues as well. And, um, and, the, uh, and he describes the people there, the different types of people, the fascinating people there. One of the people he describes was a 96-year-old Litvak who was born in Kovna. And he asked him, how, how, do, you, how do you attribute your longevity? Uh, you're, you're healthy, your mind is great, and you're 96 years old. So he said, I was an orphan when I was, grew up in Kavna, and I used to hang around the Beis HaMussar, where in those days it was still Rabbi Itzala Petterberger, the primary Talmud of Rabbisroel Salanter. And he said, I was once dancing with the, the people from the Beis HaMussar, the Musar house with Rabbitsula, and I was holding Rabbitsula's hand. And because I was a wild little kid and I was dancing, I kicked him. And, and Rabbitsula said to me, but don't kick me. You should live long, but please don't kick me. It hurts. So he said, so I got a bracha from Ravitz Lepeterberger to be able to uh, live long. So he died uh, two years later when he was 98 years old. And here, Nebuchadnezzar describes holding the hand of someone who held the hand of Petterberger. Um He even describes the Heimishkeit of the small community at the time that he that he uh, was asked by a local nun if she can come and visit his shul and get a tour of the shul to see how the Jews uh, pray, because that's probably how their Savior prayed in a similar type of shul, since he was a Jewish rabbi. So he gave them a little tour of his shul, and that was uh, the uh, extent of his interfaith uh, outreach at the time also. They um, tried to set up a kosher bakery and a kosher butcher, um, so the community is is starting to get built up. But what he most describes there, and very interesting, is the people, besides for building up in the activities in the local community, is the people who came to visit. Miami was the only place in the United States, perhaps in the world at the time, that you get such a diverse exposure of the entire Jewish people, because everyone came there. Everyone came to visit, everyone came to vacation, everyone came down for the winter. And he goes through what he says is an incomplete and partial list. And I just want to read for you, straight from the book, this list of people that he was exposed to during that decade, of people who came down to visit in Florida, who he got a relationship with, and the people in the community got a relationship with, and they had an impact, and influence, on the development of the Miami Beach Jewish community. Rabbi Yisuf and the Panev and of course, his son, and of course his son, the son, Rabbi Avram, the Satmarov, Rav Rabbi Yilish Taitelbaum, Rabbi Mordechai Shulman, the Rashiva, the Slabatki Yeshiva, Rabbi Yishu Heschel, the Kapishnetz Rabbah, Rabbi Meir the Taiter of Rabbi Shner Cutler, the Rashiva Lakewood, Rabbi Kamenetsky, Rabbi Rabbi Rav Salvechik from from, from uh, YU, Rav Shlomo Gorin, the Chief Rabbi of the IDF and later the Chief Rabbi of Israel. Rabbi Emanuel Jacobowitz, the future chief rabbi of the British Empire, Rabbi Leo Jung, Rabbi Dr. Norman Lamb, um, Rabbi Emanuel Gettinger of Pinchas Taitz, Rabbi Naftali Riff, Rabbi Shamshener Fall Weiss, Rabbi Meisha Feinstein, Rabbi Leo Kitov, Rabbi Aaron Paperman, Rabbi Herman Neuberger, um, David Pardo of the Orachayim Girls uh, Institutions, the, the early Kirov uh, work, Rabbi Nissen of Eitz Chaim, um David Lifshitz also Y.U. um it's like David Grossman who of of all the people on the list he's pretty much the only one who's still around um the uh it's like Grossman who was very young then but he was already fundraising Ramesh Sherer of Agudat Yisrael, Dr Yosef Berg who was a a minister and the speaker of the Knesset and a minister in the Israeli government at the time Rabbi Laser Silver Eli Wiesel, um it goes on and on here Rabbi Alexander Lynchner uh Menachem Parish of the Israeli Knesset Yitzhak Rabin Yigal Alon, and it just goes on and on and on and on and literally you have this uh, entire gamut of the Jewish people who are coming down to Florida and uh and that's the type of impact and exposure that the Jews of the 1960s and 70s in Miami Beach are are privileged to uh because they all they all come down to uh to do it he says a funny story with the satmarov about how he gave his shul part there was a base medjush, an extra base measure in his shul he gave it to the satmarov and all his chassidim, and the satmarov would use his mikveh The wine built a mikvah when he came down to the community and he and people were saying uh, what is what is this young uh, whipper snapper rabbi know how to do about building a mikvah? building a mikvah is a complicated ordeal and people were were speaking about him like that so he said okay fine you know and, uh, Satmarov comes down and he used the mikvah. So then no one ever said a, another word about the mikvah then. Um, of course, there's, there's plenty more to say about maybe we'll save more Rabbi Wine stories for another time. But like I said, Rabbi Zev Left grew up in the area. He's also still a prominent rabbi among us uh, today in Moshav of Um, he went to the academy and the high school. And then he becomes back, comes back there and he's the young, becomes the rabbi of the young Israel of greater Miami. Until he moves to Israel in 1983. Another, another, um, someone, an individual who continues to have a major impact. Um, and I don't speak contemporaries. I'm not talking about his continued major impact, uh, on the Miami Jewish community today, but, um, but he already made history, um, from the early time that he was there. that's Rabbi Yochanan Zweig, um, who grew up in, in, uh, you know, his, his father was, Served during World War II, so he grew up in an, in an army base in Nebraska before he, he moved to Philadelphia, where he really grew up. And and um, and Rabbi Gross, Rabbi Alexander Gross, brings him to Miami at one point. He was he was um, in Neri Yisrael. He had smicha from a Ruderman and 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 close to Rabbi Weinberg. And he went to grad school there. Then he becomes a rebbe and based at Talmud in, in Sanhedrin Ruchevet in Yerushalayim. And, uh, but in 1974, Rabbi Gross brings him in to be involved with the yeshiva there, to expand it, to bring it to the next level, to open a real yeshiva, a post-high school yeshiva, and then a koil, and he is involved there with the high school and elementary school and the federation and, and, and a general influence on the, on the community, boys school, girls school, and, uh, someone who's really, um, been a major force uh, together with, the great lay leaders, Torah builders of Miami, like Moshe Chaim Berkowitz and others. Um, so that's uh, another someone who has an impact. An earlier rabbi, one who Rabbi Wein replaced was Rabbi Aryeh Rotman, who was the original rabbi of the Beth Israel Shul and, um, an early Rav in the community before he left to, um, another couple of rabbinical positions, but later to found the very famous Merkaz Torah, uh, yeshiva in Yerushalayim. Um, what, what greatly influenced the Jewish community in Miami was the influx of, of Cuban, first Cuban Jews following the revolution, Castro, the very wealthy and prestigious Cuban Jewish community. Many of them moved to Miami in that general area of South Florida and then from Latin America, from Venezuela, Colombia and other countries, the different upheavals and revolutions and very often, uh, um, it was it was Marxist influenced revolutions, and a lot of these wealthy Jews and and, and and industrialists and investors had to leave as a result, and they came to Florida. I have a neighbor actually on my block who who is uh, who she is here. She you know she's from originally Colombia, and and they and she grew up in Miami. She moved from Colombia. They literally had to escape, and I once. You know, at a Shabbos meal, I made a reference to, I forgot who it was, the dictator of of Colombia. And you know, she made a scowl because her father had to escape Colombia because of that man, because of that uh, despot. So it wasn't a good idea to bring it up. But in any event, um, you know, Chafetz Chaim has been active in in Miami, the yeshiva there. And like I said, uh, Rabbi Henach Leibowitz used to visit. But even earlier, Rabbi David Leibowitz actually spent a few weeks in Florida in the 1930s. In 1977, one of the most important events in Miami history, the founding of the Miami Boys' Choir, Rachmil Begun, who was a single bacher studying in Yeshiva Ner Yisrael in Toronto, had a bad pneumonia. And his doctor told him that the only way to get better is to get down to the heat in Miami, not the Miami heat, it wasn't around yet. But um, and to get down 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 south. So he goes down there, and he had already been involved in a Pirche Toronto uh, choir, and they put out a couple of albums. So they asked him, you know, we have some kids with great voices in Miami. Maybe you could get something together. And uh, he ends up founding a choir. And even when he goes back up north to New York, to Toronto, wherever he was, they keep on calling him back down, and he founds the Miami Boys' Choir. Chabad was involved also in the early uh, stages, and in 1977, they put out the first album, The Victory in Entebbe, which, the, which was the year before, 1976, so this was commemorating the victory in Entebbe, and uh, the rest is history. The first several albums were recorded in Miami with Miami kids in the choir. He himself lived in New York, but he would commute every couple of months, he would fly down to do practices and recordings, and, and there was a, it was literally a Miami boys' choir, and since, uh, Miami gave it its original impetus and fame. So even in 1980, when they moved to, when they moved to New York, um, it retained the name of its original, uh, fame and origins of the Miami Boys Choir. And the first New York album was de Shmaya, And, uh, and of course that took uh, Miami Boys Choir to the next level. Um, lots of Russia Yeshiva would come down for winters, uh, Rebbes to recover medical treatment, Ramachim Partsovich of the Mir Yeshiva. Um, Ellie Nuberger uh, told me this story in 1971. When was sick, he first got sick. Uh, he came to America, so there was some quack doctor in Miami who claimed that he had the cure for multiple sclerosis, but it was a hoax. So he was down in Miami for that, uh, for this supposed treatment. So, so when Rambam was visited by a friend to see how he was doing, he asked him, "How's Miami?" So he said, "Miami." is a shtat of Elder Mansion. It's a city of elder people. So Ramnachem already perceived that, uh, at that time also. Some of the famous residents of Miami Beach, of the Elder Mansion who were there, one of the most famous ones was Isaac Beishavis Singer, a great Yiddish uh, writer for the Foverts and books and the winner of the Nobel Prize of Literature in 1978, he was a, a real Polish Jew till the end of his life. He, you know, he was from Bilgarai. He grew up in a religious Hasidic home actually in Bilgarai and later in uh, Radzin, and and he was primarily known for his Warsaw uh, connection and his writings of Jewish Warsaw the pre-war in 1935. He moves to New York, and he lived later on the Upper West Side, but he retired to uh, South Florida in his later years, and he lived out his, uh, his last years in Florida from the 1980s and on. Um, the Israeli ambassador to the U.S., I think he's finishing, but I'm not good on current events, so I'm not sure, um, Ron Dermer grew up in Miami Beach. He had to give up his U.S. citizenship when he started working for the Israeli government, even before he became the U.S. ambassador. And his father, Jay, and his brother, David, were both served as mayors of Miami Beach at different times. So it's a political family, a Jewish political family. He and They had originally been in Israel. Uh, the family originally came from Israel and then moved to Miami Beach. Um, and he moves back to Israel and uh, and gets involved with the Israeli government. So that's uh, another uh, famous uh, Miami Beach resident who um, is doing much for the Jewish people. The Miami Heat is largely an Israeli-owned, Jewish-owned op- operation. The Arison family, which is one of the wealthiest families in the world, has owned the team from its early years in the 1980s. Um, started the family was 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 originally. Fa- Mayor Arison was a multimillionaire, owned a, the largest shipping company in Palestine under the British mandate, and he was involved with the with the um uh, Romanian settlers who, in 1882, with the help of Baron Edmund James de Rothschild, established Zichron Yaakov, one of the first Jewish agricultural colonies in Palestine, part of the first Aliyah in the late 18 in the late 19th century. So his son Ted Arison. Uh, served in the Israeli army and, and then moves to the United States in the 1950s. And first was, you know, some tried out all kinds of business ventures. Some were successful, some were very not successful. But he eventually moves to Miami and fi- founds the Carnival Cruise Lines in 1972. And it's the largest and most lucrative cruise ship line in the world. I don't know if cruise ships are still going around now in the virus times, but, it, In theory, it's the uh, largest cruise ship line in the world, and the current owner of the Miami Heat is Mickey Harrison, his son, whose sister, Shari Harrison, moved back to Israel and is also quite a personality here, and she's the uh, wealthiest woman in Israel. So that's a little bit about Miami. Miami Beach is, of course, much more, but we'll suffice with it. For now, just a little taste. So this was Yehudi Geber with Jewish History, of Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudiGeber.com for questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, sponsorships, lectures, virtual tours, and anything else. Be in touch with me. And you can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean and follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites. And I hope you enjoyed.